as we study God's Word and do what it says, the Holy Spirit guides us into truth and protects us from deception. God calls us to minister to each other because we're all members of His family. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Students, if you would open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 5, Lord willing, we'll finish uh, 1 Thessalonians 5 today. So just by way of contextual review, Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians about 52 AD, roughly 20 years after Christ's resurrection. He was in the city of Corinth when he wrote it. He had spent a couple of months in Thessalonica, got run out of town, went to Berea, uh, then went south uh, to Athens and then to Corinth, and then he wrote the letter to Corinth, uh, from Corinth to the Thessalonians, after Timothy came back and said, look, they're doing pretty well. They're standing firm in their faith. And so he wrote it to instruct them, one, on God's design for the church family. It was a brand new church. They were only months old. They didn't know a lot about how to do church, so he wrote them uh, how to do that. He used the word brethren. Interesting phrase in this passage in 1 and 2 Thessalonians, he used the word brethren 24 times. So brethren indicates family, God's family, uh, brothers and sisters, fellow Christians. So every family, uh, everyone needs a family to belong, grow, and serve. That's one of the three monikers you'll see here at Valley Baptist Church. We all need to belong to the church family. We all need to Grow in the church family, we all need to serve in the context. Now, you know and I know that no family is perfect, right? Especially yours and mine. And Paul writes them this passage in 1 Thessalonians 5 to inform them how God wants them to behave toward one another and toward God in the context of his spiritual family. So he begins by instructing them, here's how I want you to behave toward your spiritual leaders, your family leaders. So let's pick up the narrative at verse 12. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. Here's the principle. Value your spiritual leaders because they are responsible to God for your spiritual well-being. Value your spiritual leaders because they are responsible to God for your spiritual well-being. Now, you and I know enough about a a, a blood family, a nuclear family, uh, that without leadership, a family falls apart. And that's why God designed fathers and mothers, right, as the architects of the family. The same thing is true of God's spiritual family. Every flock of sheep needs a shepherd, and God gave his church spiritual leaders, pastors, and teachers for that purpose. And Paul says, we request. It's it's a word that means urge. It it also means urgent. I'm urgently requesting you to do this. And he's saying, "I, I have a personal request for three things. I want you to acknowledge your leaders. I want you to esteem your leaders. And I want you to live in peace with each other. Right? Get along with each other. And the word appreciate or acknowledge means to recognize 
and to give due respect to the leader that God has placed over the church because they diligently labor. They work hard, have heavy responsibility, uh, difficult effort. You know, um, shepherding sheep is hard. Shepherding people is impossible. (laughs) Without divine help. And even then, it takes a toll and leaves you with a great deal of scar tissue. I don't think any of us have any idea the kind of labor that our pastoral team does here at this church. It is remarkable. He says, these folks have been anointed and appointed by God to have charge over you. And that word charge means literally to stand before, to preside over a group of people as a leader or manager. It means to manage well, It means to lead with care and concern. It means to lead like a shepherd leads sheep or a father, a godly father, leads their children. It doesn't mean with domination. That's not what they're talking about. It's with sacrifice. It's with sacrificial love and shepherding for the benefit of those who are being led. So parents and moms, you obviously know this intuitively. Sometimes us dads have to learn it the hard way. Leadership is all about sacrifice. It's all about servanthood. It's all about doing what is in the best interest of those you love. And that almost always means laying down your time and your priorities for the benefit of your children, and that's what pastors are called to do in the church. It's interesting that pastors are both shepherds and they're also sheep, right? They're people. They're made in God's image and their sheep. Pastor Rogers said for years, every pastor needs a pastor. Every shepherd needs a shepherd, right? And sometimes to balance that is a difficult process. And Paul delineates that leadership responsibilities by using the phrase, in the Lord. Church leaders of any kind are subject to the great shepherd. They are accountable to the great shepherd. They're called by God, they're accountable to God, and there's a stringent list of qualifications in 1 Timothy Three and Titus, one that they have to meet. Leaders in the church are to remain submissive to the Lord, and church members are to be submissive to their leaders. Unfortunately, there is a great deal of what I call leadership abuse in the church today, and it is absolutely tragic and it's antithetical to everything the Lord Jesus Christ taught us about leadership. Hebrews 13, 17 gives us some perspective. He's talking to us as members. He says, obey your leaders and submit to them, For, why? They keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Peter, talking to pastors, talking to spiritual leaders, he says, do not lord it over those entrusted to you, but be examples to the flock. Live your talk. Walk your talk, rather, right? So, We are called to submit to each other, and leaders are called to humble themselves and to serve because they are accountable to Almighty God. Pastors are accountable to God for your spiritual welfare. Fathers and mothers are accountable for their children. Now, I realize there's an age of accountability whereby the children makes their own decisions. Got it? Now, they stand on their own at that point in time. But we are accountable as parents to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. We are to shepherd our children in the same way that spiritual leaders shepherd uh, the flock of Jesus Christ as servants, not as dictators. 
One of the job descriptions of a spiritual leader is to give instruction. To give instruction literally means to put into the mind. And I know that as parents and as grandparents, sometimes it's a difficult thing to figure out, how do I put this concept into the mind of my children, my grandchildren, my nieces, nephews, family, friends, etc. Pastors struggle with that when they put messages together. How do we make this word of God, eternal word of God, and put it into the mind? Sound teaching is central to any of the church's abilities to apply God's truth to everyday life. And to instruct here means a variety of things. It means to teach, but it also means to guide. It means to correct. All based on what? The word of God is the foundational source for our instruction and teaching. And Paul says, based on their hard work, based on their teaching, based on their shepherding, based on their accountability to God, I want you to esteem them. I want you to be responsive to them. I want you to support them. And I want you to do that super abundantly. He says, very highly. He says, most exceedingly. You know, I have been in churches that don't work. If you've not ever been in a church that didn't work, you didn't appreciate what we have here. Because this is a church that the Holy Spirit is in control of. And it works because it's under the authority of the Holy Spirit and our leadership team, the pastoral team or the board of directors, is committed to being responsible and listening to the Holy Spirit. It's absolutely amazing. Every Sunday I come to church and I'm going, wow, this works. This is what the body is supposed to be like. This is what the church family is supposed to be like, right? So this esteem has to do with affection. Don't take your pastors for granted. Don't take them for granted. Esteem them in love. He's talking about agape love. He's talking about sacrificial love that's offered for the benefit of another. Esteeming your pastoral team here would be things like expressing gratitude, giving adequate financial support, getting involved in ministry with them. It's hard to lead people who don't like you. It's tough. It's tough. Our pastors at this church live with weekly criticism. You would not believe some of the notes that come in every single week because somebody didn't like this or that. And some of it is beyond petty. That's part of the turf. You just sign up for that when you say, I'm going to be a spiritual leader. You live, and some of you that are in ministry, you're going, uh-huh, uh-huh. I get it, I get it, right? <laughs> so a note that says, thank you, bless you, you're blessing me, appreciate. I'll tell you, our leadership team here would just praise God for you at that point. So 1 Peter commands pastors to serve the flock out of love, not out of domination, but out of sacrificial love. And Paul commands the church to value their pastors and pay them a living wage. 1 Timothy 5.17 says, Let the elders who rule well be considered of double honor, right? He's talking about compensation. Especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. I'm on the board of directors here. And one of our responsibilities is to make sure that our spiritual leading families, our, our pastoral team, that we take care of them because they're here laying down their time in their life and that's part of the thing that uh, uh, calls us and drives us as well. I also want you to know that scripture always talks about elders, meaning pastors, meaning teachers in the plural. The Bible never says the pastor. It doesn't exist in scripture. It is always plural. Elders, leaders, pastors, teachers, bishops, whatever it happens to be, there's always more than one that shares the load and it's, it's good accountability as well. And then Paul concludes this particular section. He says, I want you to live in peace with each other. 
I want the leaders to be at peace with other leaders. I want the shepherds and the sheep to get along with each other and be free of criticism and conflict and domination. Paul tells us in, the Holy Spirit through Paul tells us in Romans 14, 19, pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. I don't know if, I know you figured this out. Peace and unity are not automatic. They're not. You know what's automatic? Criticism and fragmentation. That's normal state of affairs because we're sinners. If you want peace and unity, you have to pursue it. You have to protect it. Criticism and, and conflict tear down, sacrificial love builds up. What is the most amazing thing about the Church of Jesus Christ in terms of practical application to witness is when we love each other, when we are at peace with each other, the testimony to the lost world is amazing. Because what's normal out there? Cancel them, criticize them, you know, chastise them, cut them off at the ankles. That's normal procedure for the world. And when they see peaceful coexistence and the building up of one another and the love inside the body of Christ, it's amazing. It's a phenomenal testimony as to the presence of God in the middle of his family. Now, since the leaders can't do all the work of the ministry, Paul adds a second series of exhortations here that apply to all of us. And they are in the present tense, which means they're continuous action. So we're called to do these things on an ongoing basis and make up a habitual practice, verse 14. We urge you, brethren, he's talking to the church family, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Here's the principle. God calls us to minister to each other because we're all members of his family. God calls us to minister to each other because we're all members of his family. And Paul uses the word urge here. It means to appeal, to exhort, to encourage, to strongly urge he says, I want you to do four things with each other for the benefit of each other. Number one, I want you to admonish the unruly. Now, the word admonish means to instruct, to advise, to caution, to correct someone who is in error. It's a warning not based on our own personal opinion. Do you know my personal opinion as to what you should do with your life is absolutely worthless? My opinion about how you should live your life is completely worthless. I'm a fellow sheep like you. What is important and authoritative is what God says about how we should live our lives. So admonition is based on what the Bible says, the authority of God's word. That's what we submit to. Before people change, and that includes all of us, we need to know that what we're doing is wrong in God's sight. I mean, if someone has an opinion about how you're living your life, that's not authoritative. But if the Lord's word, the word of God, convicts you of sin, that is authoritative. And on that basis, if someone says what you're doing is wrong and here's what God says about that, now you've got a decision. Am I going to listen to that admonition or not? The word unruly literally means the careless, the disorderly, the slackers, the loafers, the undisciplined. So unruly is not something you want someone to be called, right? It literally refers to a soldier that's out of step. Have you ever seen soldiers marching in line and they're keeping rank, right? They're following the orders of their, 
uh, officers. The, an unruly soldier is someone who's not keeping rank, not keeping step. They're not in step with the Holy Spirit. They're not keeping step with, uh, with, uh, with their fellow soldiers or with what God commanded. And Paul says, I want you to get in line. I want you to get in step with what the Lord is telling you through his word. So number one, admonish the unruly. Number two, encourage the faint-hearted. Encourage the discouraged. This word faint-hearted literally means small soul. It means people that are easily discouraged. And it means we are to comfort and cheer up the despondent. We are to help them by giving them hope and strengthening their faith. We are to help them by helping them find a place of service inside the body of Christ because God has equipped every one of his children with gifts and a calling to use that gift inside the body of Christ to benefit God's family. So, Admonish the unruly and encourage the faint-hearted because all of us at some point in time need help. And that leads us to the third admonition, help the weak. Help the weak. This is what, these are things we do for each other, for each other. The word help literally means to hold on to tightly, right? So hold tightly on to the weak. Don't let them fall. Give them support. Um, I shattered my left ankle uh, in 1982, snow skiing in about six pieces and had multiple, two couple of surgeries, metal plates, bone grafts, etc. And that ankle needed a tremendous amount of support for about eight months. I was on crutches for four months. And even now when I do hiking uh, in places where I probably shouldn't uh, and I snow ski, I wrap it. So I give it support, right? I'm trying to support that ankle because it's weak. It's weaker than the other ankle at that point in time. And uh, sometimes we even use crutches, folks on crutches supporting uh, the areas of their legs that are weak. Those who are weak, and by the way, let's be honest, at some point we all are weak. Amen? We may struggle with temptation. We may struggle with self-doubt. We may struggle with guilt. We may struggle with bad habits. We may struggle with lack of faith. We may struggle with a past history of broken relationships we're ashamed of. Folks that are weak may need, they need help, but they may need physical help. They may need prayer. They may need counseling. They may need accountability. They just may need a word of encouragement. They just may need friendship, right? Our, our church, we try and have things. We have divorce care. We have grief care. We have programs like that where there are groups of people that can offer support for people that are in a period of time where they need that. It may only be for six months. It may be for five years. It may be a ministry that they want to do forever. But helping the weak is imperative because at some point in time, we're all weak. And that's why we need to be there for each other in that process. And you know, sometimes this is very little things. You have no idea what a phone call does. It's just a phone call that says, just checking in on you. How you doing? A card. Little things. Thirdly, be patient with everyone. I guess this is fourth one. Be patient with everyone. The word is patient is a word that's fun to talk about, not so fun to do, right? The word literally means macrothumia. Macrothumia. You know what it means? Long fused. Have a long fuse, not a short temper. You know people with very short fuses. He's talking about be long on passion, be long on, 
uh, experiencing hard things before you react. It is very difficult to refuse to give in to anger and retaliate when you are harmed or you are damaged or you are attacked without cause. Everyone in your life requires long-suffering. So do you. You're hoping that people are long-fused around you. You need to do the same for them, right? Patience with people requires persistence. It is terribly easy to write somebody off. Just say, I'm so done, I'm out of here. That's not what the body of Christ does for each other because love is patient. Love is patient. Verse 15, see that no one repays evil for evil. When we've been wronged, it's our natural fleshly tendency to pay back evil for evil. Have you ever noticed that sometimes revenge feels so righteous? I mean, they did me, and I'm going to do them, except they're wrong, and I'm right, and it feels good to get even. As a matter of fact, Hollywood has made hundreds of billions of dollars designing movies all around the theme of righteous revenge. You know, in the first third of the movie, somebody gets wronged, and they really were wronged. I mean, it is a moral outrage. And the audience for the next two-thirds of the movie is going to say, someday they're going to get theirs, and I'm going to see it happen. And when they get theirs at the end, you know, big fight or whatever it happens to be, we go, yeah, they got theirs, right? Justice was done, and that revenge feels so righteous, right? Well, that's not what God says. Standing against evil is good. Using evil as a weapon to get e even, that's evil. You know, I've, heard, I've talked to people who said, well, the simplest way to fight fire is with fire. We'll just build a bigger fire than they have. Yeah, guess what? Everybody gets torched then, right? God is very clear that he alone has the right to repay. Romans 12, 17. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. That's pretty universal. Never and anyone. Verse 19. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You know, we live in an increasingly lawless culture. Have you noticed? You don't have to go very far before you see lawlessness everywhere. Now, one or two, three, two or three things happen. Number one, when you see the lawlessness, either you fall into despair and you say, the whole world's going to you know we're in a handbasket. This is unbelievable. I'm moving out of here, somewhere where there's no sin, in another state. Right? Yeah, there's no sin there either. Right. So we're either tempted to fall into despair or we say, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. And that's when people wind up doing things they probably are, shouldn't do, obviously shouldn't do. God says what? I am sovereign. I am the king. I am in control. And I will exterminate evil from the earth in my time and in my way. Trust me to take care of you. If you want evidence of God's willingness and commitment to exterminate evil, all you need to do is read Revelation 6 to 22. 
and you will understand how God is going to deal with evil, and he will exterminate it. He will rid the world of wickedness and wicked people, and he alone has the wisdom to do it correctly. You and I don't. So don't pay back evil for evil. Give God room to do what he's going to do. Instead of seeking revenge, verse 15 tells us we should, quote, always seek after what is good for one another and for all people. Now, this word seek is a very powerful word. It means you should physically, literally chase after. You should aggressively pursue. You should run down like a predator runs down a prey. You should run down good. You should pursue it. Don't think good things will just happen he says, you have to work very hard at pursuing what is in other people's best interest. You know, you don't have to work very hard at pursuing your own self-interest, right? You wake up in the morning and you go, it's all about me. It's always been all about me. It's always going to be all about me, right? I mean, that's just reality, right? Who do you think about 99.9% .9 of the time? C'est moi, c'est moi, right? What else is there? And most of us, when we think about other people, we think what? If I'm nice to them, I can get them to do this for who? Me. Right? So I'll be nice because it's all about me. Right? I mean, that's the flesh. That's normal. That's what we do. That's not God's way. God says, I want you to pursue intentionally what is good for them. 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. I love this chapter, except when I have to obey it. <laughs> then it's very convicting. It says, love is patient, love is kind, right? And the end, the last description says, love never fails. Wow, right? That love, God's love, in 1 Corinthians 13 is other-directed. It is not self-centered, it's other-directed. Now, the next section, remember, Paul's writing about how to get along in the church. He says, if you want to get along in the church of Jesus Christ as God's family, here's what I want you to do. The next section is a bullet point list that says God's behavioral requirements for us. By the way, there are no suggestions in Scripture. God never says, you might think about doing X, Y, Z. Everything God says is with authority. These are commands. Very, very simple. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. Why? For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Here's the principle. Easy to say, ooh, hard to do. God commands us to rejoice constantly, pray persistently, give thanks in everything. God commands us to rejoice const constantly, pray persistently, and give thanks in everything. And all those commands are God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now, all of these commands, these three, were written as one thought. By the way, chapter markings were not added to the Bible until 1227 AD. There were no chapters in the Bible for the first 1,200 plus years of church history. It was just a book of the Bible had, you know, 500 verses in it, except there were no verses. It was just all one thought. So they added chapters in 1227 A.D., and they didn't divide the chapters into verses until 1555 A.D. 
So for us, we're blessed because we not only know the thought, we know the address where you can find the thought. John 3.16 is a thought, and it has an address so you can locate it. Right? So these verses, when they were written, were not written as three separate verses. It was all one thought. I just wanted you to know that. Here's how we can obey those commands. There's only one way you can obey the command to rejoice, pray, and give thanks. And that's because, number one, you know God is good, and God has good plans for his people. Romans 8.28. And we what? Know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew those he predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. Now, if you believe that, that God causes all things to work together for good, then you can rejoice always, pray always, give thanks in everything. If you don't believe that God is controlling your circumstances for you good, then you will not rejoice. You will complain, which is what most people wind up doing. Joy is the inner gladness. It's the contentment. It's the satisfaction. It's delight from knowing, loving, and serving sovereign God. It's about a relationship with Almighty God. Happiness, on the other hand, is, is based on the word happenstance, which means it's based on chance. You know, it, happiness comes and goes. Sometimes your day is really good and you wind up being happy. Sometimes your day is really good and you wind up being unhappy. I mean, you know, just kind of how it was, right? But joy depends on your relationship with God. And God, guess what? He never changes. I want you to know that happiness is very circumstantial and joy is not natural. Joy is supernatural, right? What is joy? Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. Joy is number two, right? It's the overflowing life of the Holy Spirit working in and through us. And based on that, Paul can command us again in Philippians 4.4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord. When? Always. And just in case you didn't get the first time, again, I will say rejoice. Now, that's an imperative. That's a command. It's not an option. Rejoice only when the circumstances are good. No, he says rejoice always. Why? Because you always have a relationship with Almighty God, and he's always good. It's interesting that Paul says, what are you to rejoice in? In the Lord. He doesn't say rejoice in your circumstances. He says rejoice in the Lord who controls all circumstances. And because we, we have constant joy, because the source of our joy is the character of God. We, you know, if you make a list of things that you can rejoice in, I mean the list could be significant, right? You rejoice in God himself. You rejoice in his salvation. You rejoice in his power. You rejoice in his protection and his provision for you in the past. Is God present with you right now? That's the source of joy, right? You rejoice in his promises for the future. He's made a lot of promises for you in the future. You rejoice because your sins are forgiven. You rejoice because you have the hope of heaven. You rejoice in God's word. He tells you how to live. You rejoice in the Holy Spirit of God who protects and guides you and opens your mind to God's word. You rejoice in the fellowship of God's people. 
If you believe that everything you need is in Jesus and whatever he chooses to provide, then you will have joy. If you believe that what you need, Jesus doesn't have, then you will not have joy. The reality is, what we need is Jesus and whatever he chooses to provide. That's what we need. We wind up bellyaching when we tell God that he doesn't give us what we want and we're smarter than he is and he should get in gear and figure out that he's supposed to do what we want him to do. Because after all, he's our genie. That's how a lot of people treat God. God says, no, I know what you need and I love you more than you love yourself and I will always give you what is in your long-term best interest because that will bless you and bring me glory. If you believe that everything you need is in Jesus and whatever he chooses to provide, then you will have joy even in suffering. James 1 says what? Consider, calculate, add it all up, rationalize. In other words, I want you to analyze this and come to a thought-through conclusion. That's what consider means. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect, that means mature, and complete, lacking in nothing. It doesn't say you will encounter only one trial per day. It says you will encounter multiple trials, various trials, which means you might be surprised by some of those trials, right? You wake up and go, I never saw that coming. Well, yes, that's true. But God did. He arranged it. He allowed it. We are not instructed to rejoice because of the specific affliction. But we're called to rejoice because what God will use that trial to produce in us if we endure. Enduring trials is what shapes us like Jesus. You know what trials are like? They're like sandpaper. What does sandpaper do? smooths the wood, right? How does it smooth the wood? By scraping off the rough edges. Have you ever thought about if a piece of wood could talk? I think it would complain about the sandpaper. Every time that sandpaper touches me, it hurts. It's scraping stuff off. I don't like this. I like my rough edges. That's just the way I am. God brings the sandpaper of trials in our life to shape us like Jesus. And sometimes he doesn't even use sandpaper. He uses a chisel, right? And if you're really stubborn, he gets a bigger hammer. That's how much he loves us. That is an affection. That is a, a, a sign of God's love that he loves us enough to get involved in our lives. I mean, can you imagine if he said, I'm going to let you rot in your sins. I mean, I know you're comfortable there, but that's just, you know, that's what I'm going to do. No, he loves us enough to say, I'm going to make you more like my son because that's how much I love you because your life will be far joyful if you do that. When you rejoice always, it's a testimony of God's glory. It shuts Satan's mouth and it's a fabulous testimony to the world. That's joy. Number two, pray without ceasing. For those of you in the service today, Pastor Andrew covered that masterfully. 
Prayer is communication with the Father and Son through the Holy Spirit. Prayer is a declaration of dependence. If we don't depend on God, we won't pray because we don't think we need to pray. And it says pray without ceasing. This means constantly reoccurring. It doesn't mean continuously. It's communication with God. It's ongoing conversation. It's a constant awareness of sensitivity to God's presence. Most of you probably have heard Elvis and Willie Nelson sing the same song. You were always on my mind, baby, right? Jesus should what? Always be on our mind. When you love someone, what? You think about them, yes? Most of the time, at least you did when you were courting each other, when you were busy lying to each other when you were dating, you know, the best foot forward business. They were always on your mind. You thought about them all the time, and when you thought about them, what? You wanted to communicate with them. When you love someone, you want to communicate with them. You want to talk with them. That's what prayer is to Jesus, because we want to be with him. We want to communicate. And it also means don't stop. Don't give up. Continue. It should be our default mode. It should be the first thing we do when we face, face any given situation. Of course, Jesus prayed a lot, a lot, frequently. And a lot of times he went out in the wilderness and prayed on an ongoing basis. Verse 18, And everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now my flesh struggles with the second word. Everything. Right? In everything. Always give thanks for all things. Thanksgiving is gratitude that we express to God for what he does and for answering prayers. And it means everything means every single thing, right? It means all things in all circumstances. You know why we give thanks in everything? Because there's nothing that's not under the control of our Heavenly Father. Nothing that's not under the control of he uses everything, even painful things, to accomplish his good purposes. Have you noticed that when you make a conscious choice to be thankful, a conscious choice, it changes your attitude? You know, you can't let something as serious as thanksgiving be left to chance. It should be a conscious choice. The Holy Spirit has impressed upon me several things throughout my long life, <laughs> my aging life. Number one, this is really basic. When I'm in the shower, I give thanks for hot water. I didn't used to do that. And then the hot water heater went out one time, and I thought, you know, it's December. <laughs> I'm really missing this water. You know, I'm really missing this water. Or if you've experienced the blackout and you have no power, and it's called July. And it's 8 o'clock at night, and the AC doesn't work because there's no power. Even for a few minutes, you go, whoa, I took this power for granted. So maybe we should give thanks when the lights come on and give thanks when the water works, right? I mean, these are basic kinds of things we take for granted. We take an enormous amount of blessings for granted. You've heard the old song, Count Your Many Blessings. Literally, it would be a good idea to write them down. Make a list. It'll amaze you what God has done. And I want you to notice that it says, in everything give thanks. It doesn't say, for everything give thanks. Right? If I have terminal cancer, I don't give thanks for the cancer. 
right? That is a disease that may kill me. I'm thankful that even in the cancer, God is sovereign and faithful and will use that disease, which he allowed, he's not the author of evil, but he allows it, to work all things out for my good. We get this confused enormously. We think we should thank God for the bad things. No, you thank God in the circumstances, not necessarily for the circumstances. When Pastor Andrew mentioned in the service he got T-boned, I don't think he thanked God he got T-boned, right? But he was thankful that God sovereignly used that process for his glory and spared their lives and had a teaching moment with his sons, right? So remember that when you're thanking God, you're thanking God for his sovereign control in the circumstances. You're not necessarily thanking God that you have cancer or that you've had a loved one die, etc. You're saying, God, I'm glad that you're sovereign over these and that you're using these even painful things for my benefit and for the benefit of those I love. By the way, thanksgiving is something that's a sacrifice. Psalm 50 verse 14 says, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Psalm 103 says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. And we do forget most of his benefits most of the time because he never stops blessing us. I mean, can you imagine if you only got blessed one day a week? I mean, Saturday's the day, baby. The other six days, it's really going to be ugly. But on Saturday, all the blessings come on one day. Let me tell you, you'd be looking forward to Saturday, right? But since God is good, how often? All the time. It's easy to become blind to it. It's easy to become blind. And you know how I know this? Because your children and your grandchildren are blind to your goodness, aren't they? Say yes. You do all these wonderful things for them. You sweat, you bleed, you cry, you die, you pray, you do all these things for them, and they miss about 99%. They have no clue. All the sweat and the blood and the gray hair and falling on your face and the tears you weep. And when that happens, you should say, Heavenly Father, I think I've got a clue how I've been treating you. That's one of the reasons he lets us have children or grandchildren so we understand. Right? Okay, I'm preaching to myself here. You just get to listen in, right? We need to be reminded of his benefits. We need to be reminded to say thank you, right? We do this because it's God's will for us in Christ Jesus. God's design is that we need to express joy, prayer, and gratitude all the time because he's the source of it all. So James 1.17 says, Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is come from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. I finally figured out what that verse meant. You know why there's no shifting shadow? Because God never moves. The shadow doesn't move because God doesn't change. He's the source of all good all the time. Now, verse 19 to 22 gives us five very brief exhortations, and they're designed to help the church in their worship and as they respond to preaching and teaching. One, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. Examine everything carefully. Hold fast to what's good. Abstain from every form of evil. Here's the principle. As we study God's word and do what it says, the Holy Spirit guides us into truth and protects us from deception. As we study God's word and do what it says, the Holy Spirit guides us into truth and protects us from deception. 
Now he says, don't quench. That means extinguish. Don't stifle. Don't put out the fire. Don't restrain, suppress, or smother the Holy Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit have his way in your life. Don't restrict his ministry through your life. The Holy Spirit is like a fire. And at Pentecost, of course, they saw those tongues of flame. The Holy Spirit is quenched anytime we ignore his presence and his leading. Has the Holy Spirit ever convicted you of sin? And you know what you did was wrong or what you said was wrong or what you thought was wrong? When you respond by confession, you're not quenching the Spirit. You're responding to the Spirit. When you try and justify your sin and refuse to confess and refuse to repent, you're quenching the Spirit. Because part of His job is to bring you back into a relationship with Jesus Christ. When the Holy Spirit prompts you to do something, you should be doing it, right? And obviously, one of the best ways to find out what the Holy Spirit wants you to do is to read His Word. Because the will of God is found in the Word of God. When Paul says, don't despise prophetic utterances, I want, you to, I want to explain a little bit of the context. At this time, they didn't have a New Testament that was completed, right? So the Holy Spirit was giving the gift of prophecy to certain church members, and they spoke the word, right, as God led them. And Paul says, don't shine these people on. Don't despise, which means to treat as lightly. Don't treat with contempt. Apparently, some of these folks in the Thessalonian congregation had been setting dates when Jesus was going to come back, and when he didn't show up on schedule, you know, they, the rest of the church said, well, anybody who purports to speak for God, we're not going to listen to him at that point in time. So the church had to depend on the Holy Spirit to help them discern the truth. We now have the completed Bible, and the canon of Scripture is closed. God does not give any more new revelation. Everything he wants to say He's said here. It's not that he can't lead you, but he's not going to give you new revelation. It's already written down. Revelation 22, Jesus is talking. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book that if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written into the book. So when people say, I got a new revelation from God, and here's what? God says, and it's on par with Scripture, you know they're lying, right? Because Scripture is closed. God does not speak new words at this point in time. Paul says, by the way, examine everything carefully, which means put it to the test. Examine it. Prove it. Demonstrate it. And no matter what comes out of a Bible teacher's mouth, a pastor, or anyone, you have the truth in your hands, and you evaluate everything by what God says. All human opinion is evaluated by God's Word, because God's Spirit uses God's words to to guide God's people. If someone said, the Lord told me this or that, it better agree with what Scripture says, right? Because the Holy Spirit never contradicts himself. I always say, be a Berean, Acts 17, 11. Paul was in Berea, by the way, just before he came to Corinth, and it says these in Berea were no more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. When Paul said, here's the gospel, blah, 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 Jesus is the Messiah, here's the Old Testament that proves it, they didn't say, oh, this guy tells us this must be true. They said, let's check it out. 
Let's open the Old Testament and find out whether Paul's actually telling the truth, right? Is he speaking truth? So the Word of God was their authority, not a human teacher. And John tells us we're to exercise discernment before you believe anything. 1 John 4 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but what? Test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you will know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist. So when you're listening to somebody teach on the radio or the television, on one of your screens, the first test is God's Word. Does what they say agree with God's Word? You know what that means? You need to know what God's Word says. That's why you open it and read it yourself. Second test is, how do they view Jesus Christ? If they proclaim Jesus Christ as the God-man came in the flesh for the salvation of the world, they're fine. If they deny the, the, the deity of Christ and the full humanity of Christ, turn the switch off. You're being lied to, right? God's word is not tough to understand. He made it comprehensible. Paul says, so test everything, hold fast to what is good which means embrace, hold tightly, guard what is valuable. The most valuable commodity you have is truth. We hear a lot about fake news. And there is a lot of fake news. As a matter of fact, we live in a culture where it's very difficult to know what to believe. Right? You listen to news, and it really doesn't matter who says it anymore. You're going, is that really the straight skinny, or am I being deceived, right? The good news is you have the truth of God's word, and that is the truth by which everything else is measured. Paul says, hang on to what's good and abstain from every form of evil. Stay away from deception. Stay away from lying people. Avoid contact with every form of evil. And by the way, Satan is the father of liars, right? And he's very, very good at it. Satan is very subtle. He'll oftentimes mix just enough truth in with lies so you drink the Kool-Aid, right? He's an expert at coating his arsenic with chocolate. So you swallow it, right? That's what Eve did, and that's where we are. Here's my plea. Don't be casual with truth. It's the most precious thing in the world, and you've got the truth in your lap right? Truth is a treasure. Protect it. Now, those are our responsibilities. The last section, real briefly, in verse 23 to 28, talk about what's God's role in our Christian maturity. Verse 23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he will also bring it to pass. Brethren, pray for us, Greet all the churches with a holy kiss. I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Here's the principle. Our present life on earth and our future life in heaven are both guaranteed by our faithful God who always keeps his promises. Our present life on earth and our future life in heaven are both guaranteed by our faithful God who always keeps his promises. It's interesting that Paul would say the God of peace himself. God does not delegate this to somebody else. He didn't delegate your salvation to somebody else. He came himself. 
He doesn't delegate your holiness to somebody else. He came himself. And he says, sanctify you entirely. This word sanctify means set apart. It means it's set apart for God's exclusive use. You're set apart for God's exclusive use. If you have a custom-made suit or custom-made dress, that suit or dress is sanctified, right? It's set apart for you because it was custom-made for you. If you are married, you are sanctified for your spouse. You are set apart for your spouse. They have an exclusive right over you and to you, right? You are set apart for God because Jesus Christ redeemed you and bought you back from the law of sin and of death. And the whole process of sanctification is becoming more like Jesus. And we've talked about this before. Every day you're alive, God is in the process of shaping us more and more like Jesus. And that should give us great hope because it depends on ultimately him more than us. Philippians 1.6 says what? Now he who began a good work in you, that's your salvation, will complete it, that's your sanctification, you're becoming more like Jesus until when? Until the day of Jesus Christ. That's either the day you leave here or the day Jesus comes back here. One of the two, all right? And Jesus says, I'm, I'm going to do that and I'm going to present you without blame. And I do that, Jesus does that because he gives us his righteousness and takes our sinfulness. And it's guaranteed to happen because it says, faithful is he who called you. Everything we've talked about, all this behavior toward leaders, toward each other, God's work in the church depends ultimately on what? His faithfulness. His faithfulness in keeping his promise. And God always keeps his promise. One of my favorite Bible verses in Numbers 23, 19, and it was spoken by a false prophet named Balaam. But it is truth. And it talks about the character of God and it says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? God has made hundreds of promises in Scripture. Every single one of them will come to pass. You can count on that. And the last thing he says, brethren, pray for us. By the way, this is just a side note. The best thing you can do for someone ever is pray for them. If you really want to love someone, pray for them. Pray for them. Because the Holy Spirit can minister to them where you can't. Pray for them. By the way, this holy kiss is our equivalent of a handshake. It's fellowship, etc. So in summary, everything we do in this passage, these admonitions, is dependent on God's grace. And God's grace is always sufficient. Let's summarize, and then Tom will come and do prayer and praise. Point one, value your spiritual leaders because they are responsible to God for your spiritual well-being. By the way, that is not a small task. Number two, God calls us to minister to each other because we are members of his family. Number three, God commands us to rejoice constantly, pray persistently, and give thanks in everything. And we can do that because he's the God of our circumstances. Number four, as we study God's word and do what it says, the Holy Spirit guides us into truth and protects us from deception. And lastly, our present life on earth and our future life in heaven are both guaranteed by our faithful God who always keeps his promises. I know this week, some of you are going to have a hard week. Some of you had a hard week this last week. Some of you are going to have a harder week this week. Count on the promises of God. He will always 
keep his word. I love you all. Thanks for coming. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com, and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today, and now that you know, do.